I know that I have talked a lot in my past few sermons about my trip to Hawaii, but I have one more story. And this one is the strangest of all. It was on the island of Oahu, and Chris, my husband, was busy at a conference. I was sitting in our hotel room, which had sliding glass doors and a balcony, and looked out over a park and then the ocean. It was very beautiful. I was sitting on the floor, cross-legged, trying to do centering prayer. Centering prayer is when you try to empty your mind so that you can experience whatever God is doing. So I was sitting there trying to quiet my mind, and all of a sudden my eyes were closed, and all of a sudden I saw something in my mind's eye. I saw to the left and behind me in the room a very large black spider-looking thing. And it ran, kind of scuttled, out of the room and jumped off the balcony. So, of course, I opened my eyes and thought, what the heck was that? But I stayed put, because I know, you know, your mind is kind of nuts. And then, in real time, with my eyes open, a dove landed on the balcony and actually waddled into the room and started walking around. And then I got nervous that the dove might do, you know, on the carpet. So I hushed him out. But I thought to myself, what is going on around here? The next day, I was walking around the hotel in that park area below the balcony, and I saw a plaque. This land was sacred to the native Hawaiians, it said. They would have these koi ponds where they breed koi fish, and they would eat off the ponds, and they loved this area, but they did believe that the ponds were possessed by a spider-like black demon. I thought, oh, I guess that's what it was. There is so much that exists that we cannot see with the naked eye. Let me say that again. There is so much that exists in this universe that we cannot see because we only see in three dimensions. John, the author of the book of Revelation, we believe was a pastor to many small churches in the early, early days of Christianity, around 90, so some 60 years after Jesus' resurrection. There was an emperor who had taken over the Roman Empire named Domitian 
Things were bad for Christians already. They were being persecuted and hunted. But Domitian was even worse. He was both a tyrant and deeply insecure. Well, if you look throughout history, the two tend to go together, don't they? Domitian declared himself a god. He just had a slight ego complex there. He declared that the empire was now to be called the eternal empire rather than the Roman empire. And he declared that he should be not just king, but everlasting king. He built himself a temple and he demanded that all of the subjects go to the temple and worship him. Now, in order to worship him, it was really quite simple. You took some incense and you threw it on the fire and you proclaimed, Caesar is Lord. Well, for many of these people who were pagans, it wasn't that big of a deal. There were already a ton of gods, so what's another one? So they would throw the incense on the fire, proclaim Caesar is Lord, and go back to their lives. But John couldn't say that. John believed that Jesus alone was Lord. And so he refused. He refused to worship the emperor. And he was sent to the island of Patmos off the coast of Turkey where he was forced to work in a rock quarry breaking rocks, carrying rocks. It was brutal physical labor. But it was on this island that John had a series of dreams and visions about the end of this world. He called what what we would go through, the great ordeal, that as time begins to end, things get harder and harder, and there's more and more battle between the light and the darkness. But at the very end, all will be well. And in the scripture that we heard today, John sees this vision of heaven. And just like our window here, Jesus is seated on the throne And there's all these people who have white robes on. No wonder we wear these. And they're singing. And they're singing songs that we sing up at the altar. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. John says that there are 144,000 at one point. At another point, he says there are more than you could count. But 144,000 is is a holy number. It's a symbol, 12 times 12, like the 12 disciples, the 12 tribes of Israel. It was supposed to be a huge, vast array of people. And he says very specifically that they're from every tribe and language and people and nation. So it's a hugely diverse group of people, an enormous crowd gathered. A lot of Christians don't understand the difference between the canon of saints and the communion of saints. 
Today is All Saints Sunday, and we're celebrating what is the communion of saints. In the church, we have the canon of saints, which are the people who lived such extraordinary holy lives that we think of them as examples, and we remember them throughout history, like Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, St. Francis. But there's this other group called the Communion of Saints, which you are a part of because you entered it at your baptism. The Communion of Saints is a way of the church pointing to a concept of eternity where we are knit together in a fabric of love with people who have already gone on ahead to heaven. You have your own personal saints, those people who will be there when you get there. The ones who will be holding the welcome home sign. The ones who you love so much that if you got to heaven and they were, weren't there, it wouldn't be heaven. And they don't have to be perfect. And they don't have to have lived their lives just right. They could have a lot of faults, but you love them and they draw you closer to God. And we believe, as people of resurrection, that there's so much more to this life than what we can see with the naked eye. That eternity begins in this life and carries on beyond death and into other spheres that we cannot comprehend. And we believe that our communion of saints live and that they love us that they influence us, they continue to change us even after they go on ahead. You know, Jesus says in his words on the mountain, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who mourn, and it never makes any sense. Why is it so good to be poor or hungry or mourning? Well, I'll tell you what it does. It helps you understand that you cannot survive without one another, that we are not self-sufficient. We are connected to one another. And poverty and grief and hunger, they remind us of these things, that we are not alone, that we cannot exist alone. You are connected with so many people who have loved you and formed you and shaped you. And even after they die, you continue to be connected with them. This whole church is formed and shaped from people who have died, from the things on the altar to the stained glass windows to the ashes that are buried in the bishop's garden. We are surrounded by the cloud of witnesses, the communion of saints. Communion means that we are interconnected. In this country today, we're afraid of death. We're afraid to talk about it. We think it's a failure when someone dies, that, that we should have kept them alive somehow. If only it, we had done this or that. We deny the fact that every human body will only last so long. You've heard me say it a million times. The death rate is 100%, right? No amount of oil of Olay will get you out of it. But we're in this strange culture in which we don't want to talk about it. And when someone dies, 
We don't talk about it. We're uncomfortable. But as people of the resurrection, today of all days, we say the names of the people we love who have died. As you receive communion, I want you to hear their names aloud, your personal saints. If you would look at the front of your bulletin, there's a beautiful painting on the front of your bulletin that Nancy picked out. Look at that painting for a moment. It depicts those who have gone on, but look how interconnected they are, how the light is shining through them. That's the communion of saints. The fabric of our being that exists beyond our comprehension in dimensions that we cannot understand or see. Also within your bulletin, there's a little piece of white paper with some lines on it. And there are pencils in your pews. I want you to take a moment and try to write legibly, if you can. Write down the names of the people that you love who have died. If you don't have a piece of paper, would you raise your hand, Harriet and Marcia? Would you bring some extra ones? Does everyone have a piece of paper? Looks like you do. Okay. If you need one, raise your hand and the ushers will bring you one. I want you to write on that paper the names of the people that you love who have died. Marcia and Harriet, if you would grab those two baskets in the back, and they're going to come and collect those pieces of paper from you. When I was a new rector in my very first church, there was a British woman named Tess who was in her 80s, and she always came to church every Sunday. One Sunday after she received communion, she came back to her pew and was closing her eyes, and she had a vision of hundreds of thousands of people, shadows of people coming up to communion, pouring down the aisles of that little church and up to the altar rail. We believe that when we receive communion, we are surrounded by those who have gone on ahead. We are surrounded by the communion of saints. Amen.